I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Sixth-generation farmer Ray McCormick of Vincennes, Indiana, first tried no-tilling soybeans in 1986 and has been experimenting with new practices and ideas ever since. Managing 2,200 acres of row crops and 2,000 acres of wetlands, McCormick has tapped on-farm research and a willingness to try new ideas to evolve his operation to 100% no-till with cover crops on every acre. He says he's gotten lots of great ideas from attending the National No-Tillage Conference, including his latest experiment, interseeding 60-inch corn with cover crops for grazing. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Ray about his diverse operation. Listen in as Ray talks about growing non-GMO corn and why he plants it late, how he uses annual ryegrass in flood-prone areas, using cover crops and food plots for deer and waterfowl, how Roundup has been instrumental in conservation efforts, and much more. Ray, tell me a little about your background. You're a multi-generation farmer in southwestern Indiana? Yeah, I live on the same hill my great-grandfather did, and uh, my grandfather and father and I, and now my son are all farming and have farmed, and it's certainly a legacy to live up to because they were some great farmers and conservationists themselves. Right. I was the sixth generation on our family farm in Michigan, north of Detroit, about 40 miles, but it's all houses today. So. Oh, mercy. Exactly. That'd break your heart. Yeah. How many acres are you farming? Well, I've got about 1,100 in non-GMO corn, about 1,100 in soybeans, and half of that is non-GMO, and then I have about 2,000 acres of forest and wetlands that I manage. You farm across the state line into Illinois too, right? That's right. Vincennes is right on the state line, and I farm around Knox County in southwestern Indiana, and then we cross over and farm in two different counties in Illinois, one of which got two and a half inches of rain last night. Wow. That's a good thing. Right. So you actually farm in two different time zones, right? Now I do. How do you deal with that? I just watch the sun and go by where the sun is. I All just right. seldom look at my watch. <laughs> well, you mentioned non-GMOs. How did you decide to get involved with those crops? As soon as the local corn plant, which is only four miles from my elevator, that's GPC, started up a non-GMO corn program, uh, they offered a 40 cent premium on top of their posted price. So a lot of times they have a positive basis. So that 40 cents plus 10 to 20 cents really made it a good deal for me in, in my location. But what gave me the confidence to jump right in is a lot of my friends that are some of the superstars in the soil health arena were already planting non-GMO corn and receiving no premium. And they told me about the good yields and the reduction in seed costs. And a few years ago, things were mighty tight on the farm. So I went in with a plan that said, I'm going to grow all non-GMO. I'm going to get third less on my seed bill, and I'm going to get a lot more income. So it's different than white corn that I used to grow. White corn was all about quality of the Mm -hmm. seed that you delivered. With non-GMO, it's all about purity of the non-GMO corn. So ours has to be 99.1% non-GMO. So it's a very high standard. Right. So how long you been no-tilling? Well, Frank, it was June of 1986 was my first endeavor into no-tilling beans into wheat cover crops. Did it work that year? It worked great. And my dad said, man, you were lucky. (laughs) And the wheat was headed out. I was borrowing a drill. The guy wouldn't let me use his no-till drill until he was done. It was knocking the chains off. And back in those days, we used paraquat 
and Surfland. That was our options. But I did take the advice of a great conservationist and consultant back then, Fred Klein, who said, you got to do it just the way I tell you. And he said, spread a bushel of wheat as soon as you pick the corn, and then we'll follow this prescription that I just outlined. And it worked great. It was five bushel better than any beans we had. And the reason we did it is we've been growing corn on corn on corn for decades because of the steepness of the fields. We would not tolerate the erosion from 30-inch beans and so forth. So we had been in continuous corn for a long time and needed to rotate out. Let's talk about your ground because you got some upland ground and then you got some river bottom land that tends to flood. So I'm in an area that has great soils. Uh, When you get east of the Wabash River during the Ice Age, it blew the soils. When there was no cover, it blew soils to the east from the west. So lots of topsoil, which was called lust, landed right where I live. So there's 80 to 200 foot of lust on top of sandstone. It's a very rich soil, but it's very rolling. It's very forgiving. But of course, it only had about six to eight inches of topsoil because it was all forested. And in many areas, that's gone. But the soil under there, while low in carbon, will continue to grow crops. So we're trying to build that back. I also farm a lot of river bottoms. And there you're in a floodplain that also was a result of the glacier outwash. So the glaciers didn't come here, but when they were in central Indiana, when they were melting, they carved out these giant river bottoms from ridge to ridge. And these are mile, two mile, three mile wide. And then when the soil blew, it covered that gravel and sand with lust, with silt loams. And that's what we farm. But they have become very flood prone. So a lot of that is going back into trees as you drive through the river bottoms these days. You mentioned you've been on continuous corn for a long time. All the experts say you're going to take a yield hit, and some no-tillers say, my gosh, you'll have so much residue, you can't make it work. But you seem to make it work. Well, I'm pretty close to a 50-50 rotation now. Back when I was farming with my father and was in college, it was all corn everywhere. But now I'm about 50-50. And the beans are 50% GMO and 50% non-GMO. We're getting a buck and a quarter premium for the non-GMO beans. So I'm working hard to get those. But I'm about a 50-50 rotating now. But with those floodplains, like last year, you could have it all planted in corn. The river comes out and kills 100% of it. You end up with beans. Mm-hmm. So that 50-50 rotation often gets flooded out and messed up. And we may have to go corn on corn to be able to grow enough corn for to reach these non-GMO contracts and so forth. But after no-tilling and using cover crops for a long time, corn stalks are my friend, not my enemy. I'm all about feeding the soil, so I grow uh, cover crops and let them get big. And the more vegetation, the more residue I get, the better it is, because when you've got two elephants under every acre, eating as much as they can, you need as much residue as possible to feed them. And the more I feed them, the better they are to me. So I'm a big fan of all the residue I can get because I become alarmed when I'm picking corn and you look down between the rows and there's nothing left. It's bare ground and I'm starving my soil. So I'm trying to get as much residue on the ground as possible the year round. So I'm making some changes. I'm trying uh, in four different areas, 60 inch row corn now with uh, cover crops in between the rows. I bought from the National No-Till Conference a cedar that is three times the size of the one I had on the head of my combine so that I can put down cereal rye. I've been using annual ryegrass and crimson clover, a lot of small seeded crops, but I want to get into Uh, growing cereal rye where I'm going with soybeans and then crimping it down so I expect to buy a crimper. So Frank, I'm making more changes now than I ever had in my life. (laughs) I wish I was 25 and not 67 because we've just got all kinds of new things we're doing and trying to move along on this exciting adventure of soil health and no-till. How are you making the decision to move from annual ryegrass to cereal rye? I think it's 
almost exclusively being driven by the serial rise ability to be crimped. So I may even move into doing it for corn and growing, but I want to try crimping down cover crops, and you can't right. do it with annual ryegrass. I love annual ryegrass, and annual ryegrass will be on certain fields because in the river bottoms where sheet erosion scouring by the river tears off inches of soil every year. When you grow annual ryegrass in the river bottoms like I do, it holds that soil in place dramatically. I've got a friend that did it this year and the neighbor accused him of hurting his farm because his <laughs> farm below the annual ryegrass was washing away. Yeah. And I have farms where there's a hump now between my fields and the neighbors. So annual ryegrass can withstand wet conditions and people can probably tell from our conversation, I farm a lot of wet ground and right. ryegrass likes it. It can tolerate flooding. So cereal rye is a grain. It can't. It's like weed. It'll kill it. But cereal rye on these big hills where we're going to go with beans and then crimp it down, I'm going to give it a try. It may be a failure, but it'll make a good story. A couple of years ago, you mentioned to me that, and we just talked about how valuable this uh, residue is. I think you mentioned to me that if I offered you $70 a ton, you wouldn't take it for residue coming off your fields? No, because it's really becoming a lifetime of effort to build up that residue. And to I once had a field catch on fire by the utility company clearing trees along mm -hmm. the power line, and they had to pay. And it was in that neighborhood. I think they paid me a pretty penny. They couldn't understand why they should have to do that. And I right. explained it to them. But that mat on top of the ground is mighty valuable. So when I'm burning my prairie grass buffers, I'm always really careful trying not to catch those no-till fields on fire. Because when you've got that much residue and you're building that much residue, I mean, that's really the foundation of feeding what's underground. Let's walk through your program. Let's go ahead a couple months into maybe September and you're harvesting corn. So walk me through the harvest and seeding cover crops and then maybe corn or soybeans next spring. Mm -hmm. So we usually start harvesting around here. Depends on how quick we get in the fields. But by September 10th, uh, people are up and rolling and combining. And I'm in southwestern Indiana, so I'm in one of the great spots to be using cover crops. So when you, let's say we start cutting beans, we planted beans first this year on the sand ground. And when we're cutting beans, we would normally be putting on a mixture, what's called the nitro mix. And it's 60% annual ryegrass and 40% crimson clover. And we've sure. been real happy with that mix. And that is typically what we would be planting corn into. So we often have knee-high crimson clover and over-knee-high annual ryegrass that we plant corn into. When we get to picking corn, we normally would be putting on about 13 to 15 pounds of annual. The other mixture was 13 to 15 pounds. Okay. We would be putting on 13 to 15 pounds of annual ryegrass and one pound of turnips. So we usually put turnips, and, and those are all small seeded. These Gandhi boxes that I've had on the head of my corn head and on my grain platform, those are small boxes. So to get mm -hmm. 15 acres per fill up, you needed to use real small seed. But what we've learned is the accuracy of dispersing those seeds on top of the ground. When you've got every few inches a spreader spreading a seed at a consistent speed, you get such a great stand that you're able to pull back. So I'm not afraid to put on 10 pounds an acre, but it depends on the erosiveness, whether we're gonna graze cattle on it, what our goals are on that field for the next spring. But what I've learned is you definitely don't wanna get it on too heavy because when that annual ryegrass gets big and rank it can be pretty tough to plant through. So you definitely don't want it laying down. You want it standing up. So don't get it on too thick. And when you're air seeding on a combine, every seed comes up every time. I often said if I was a, as good at growing grain as I am of getting stands of cover crop, I'd be one rich <laughs> farmer because it works every time. So are you seeding all your cover crops with the seeder on the combine? 
Yes. But again, Frank, I told you about all these changes. We just ordered a brand new John Deere drill, and we think if seeding cereal rye off the corn head doesn't work that good, Mm. then we're going to go to drilling cereal rye because we're darn serious about planting soybeans into cereal rye and crimping it down and trying to hold down on herbicide usage and pay for that equipment with that reduction in that bill. And again, we've talked about, Frank, building residue levels. Well, you know, when you go to the National No-Till Conference and you hear people talking about all the biomass that you get from cereal rye, it sounds like a way to help build up those windblown lust that were tilled too many years and don't have any black. They don't have any dark color to them. So we're in a hurry when you're 67, you get in a real big hurry to heal your farms back and and build up your residue. So we've bought a drill, we bought a bigger cedar, we're gonna try cereal rye, we're gonna try crimping, we're working on 60 inch rows. I mean, it's just, I can't wait to go to the no-till conference and talk to people that are doing this stuff. Yeah. What made you decide to try 60 inch corn rows? Well, Frank, I was planting corn this spring, and of course, you had a breakout session on it right. last year, speaker, mm-hmm. and I said, I'll never do that. That's silly and so forth. <laughs> so I'm planting corn this spring, and I want to listen to podcasts. So I, there's the one. I'd listen to all of them. Well, there's the one on 60-inch corn. Bob Recker. Yeah. Bob Recker. And uh, my mouth just fell open. I couldn't. Good thing that tractor guides itself because yeah. when he started talking – and he was talking about the yield and how there's no reduction in yield, the double in the population, growing cover crops in between the rows. And because of cover crops, I'm trying to expand my cattle herd as absolutely fast as I can. I've run out of pastures to rent. There are no pastures left. So now I'm completely dependent upon cover crops. We're green chopping that nitro mix. And we've got a, hundreds of bales of hay, so our cattle are up in little lots right now being fed hay and then ran on cover crops in the winter. Well, he was talking about if you want to grow 60-inch rows, you got to have a cover crop and I control the weeds. And I said, well, that makes sense. And then mm-hmm. he says, if you want to graze cattle, it's a slam dunk. <laughs> and I just said, we got one field left here that doesn't have any herbicide on it. And we burned it down with Roundup and we got Jamie Scott to send me a six-way mix. I planted the corn with that horse planter and with it, you can just push the buttons and make it do 64,000 in the row and skip rows on every turn and so forth. And then we took our little replant planter, which is a split row planter and took three of the units off. And then I went back in and drilled cover crop down the centers of that emerged corn. That corn was probably 10 inches tall. So that's one way we did it. Another way we did it was just planting it with that split row planter. And where we do all this waterfowl hunting, that waterfowl hunting leasing business, we planted the corn in 60-inch rows and planted buckwheat and Japanese millet in the split rows between the corn. And we got some beautiful stuff for that because in that talk he talks about for people that do food plots for wildlife and in the circles I'm in there's a lot of people that do that and there's a lot of conversation on that and I said that's a slam dunk of having that diversity of soybeans and corn and buckwheat and turnips and everything on one pass and so I went from I'll never do that to doing it in four or five areas just because of that podcast. It really, really sparked an interest for me. Well, it's good you still had one field you hadn't done yet. Yeah, well, I have one field where we were going to do, we'd say that we were going to do a seed corn plot. Mm-hmm. And so I told the guy, I want to do 60-inch rows off the end of it. And he said, this is the Monsanto guy. What? <laughs> Six-inch rows? I said, no, not six inch, 16 inch rows. I said, no, not 16, 60. He says, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, some of the other guys that came to do the plot had, so we did different combinations of 60 inch rows. But in that one, Frank, like some of my other fields, it was getting late. It was like planting into a prairie. There was so much beautiful, big, tall annual ryegrass. And it had the herbicide on it. 
Well, there are no weeds up and down those 60-inch rows because of that huge mat of annual ryegrass. So it just goes to show how much weed suppression you can get from annual ryegrass and cover crops, but it's really pretty. It's growing in 60-inch rows with this mat of prairie down in between the rows. Well, Ray, the first time I think we ever had 60-inch corn rows on the program at the National No-Tillage Conference was probably... 20 years ago or so, we had a speaker from South Africa, and they were doing corn in 60-inch rows, and he argued that the reason they did it down there is that was so the elephants could run between the rows without damaging the corn crop. I was right in at the implement dealer and saying, have you got a tractor and bush hogs that'll go down 60-inch rows? Yeah, we do. They were Uh out there measuring them and everything. Well, I don't have enough weeds to even worry about that, but I think it is the gateway into being organic with corn and not tilling it. The guys that are organic in my area spend the entire summer working the ground and destroying the soil health and burning up diesel fuel. I think this is the way that we're going to get these soil health farmers doing organic corn. Yeah. Well, we've gone through the cover crops, Ray, and now it's spring and you're going to no-till corn. Walk me through your system now that we're in the spring. Now, I'm not using a row cleaner and I'm using a horse planter. So I'm planting two and a half inches deep with a lot of down pressure. I'm putting tubular off the back. So I'm putting on 27 gallons of 28% off the back and three gallons of sulfur thiosol off the back mm-hmm. with stabilizer. And then when it's early and good ground and not the idea of planting conditions, then I will put pop-up in the row. And then I've got Dawn Curve Pine on the back. So I'm running no attachment on the front and essentially slicing through that annual ryegrass A row cleaner doesn't really do you much good. The real obstacle is underground, that massive web. I mean, it's like a carpet underground, all those roots that are growing there. So I'm just slicing through that and trying to pinch that carpet back together. So using a 24-row planter and carrying a lot of fluid and trying to burn down two to three days ahead of time, what we find is if you try to burn that down immediately after planting that that nitrogen off the back burns that annual ryegrass and it's hard to kill it or it's slow to die in the row with Roundup. So if we can get over it shortly before planting it, but of course we're always butting up against wet soils and a lot of rainfall in this area and so forth. So we plant green. The green may die in a few days or the green may get sprayed, but normally With the tubular off the back, not a good idea to spray immediately after planting. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a horse planter. How did you get involved with this? What did you like about it that made you decide to go that way? Well, again, at the National No-Till Conferences, they showed some pictures of other planters from Europe, which sparked my interest. And I was very unhappy with the John Deere planter. It was because I was making it do what I'm doing now essentially making the true V openers do all the work. It was busting the rivets on the true V openers, and we would carry 20 of them with us. And if you put a new one on in a half hour, it was just as likely to be broken as the other one. So the John Deere planter is just not big and heavy enough to really be a good no-till planter. So I began to talk to a gentleman in North Dakota that had a horse planter, and I said, you know, do you ever break those true V openers? He said, no, I've never broke one, and I plant through rock. I began to talk with the dealer and so forth, and I said, that's the most important piece of equipment on my farm. I'm going to go into debt and spend five years paying on this thing, but I'm going to have a planter that'll no-till, that'll Mm -hmm. dig down through there. So it doesn't have markers on it, It has electric motor on each row. I mean, it's smarter than I am. So good thing I have a son to help me figure everything out all the time on the electronics, but it does a good job and we're real happy with it. 
Now let's move over to no-till beans in the spring. Okay, I'm a big fan of drilling no-till beans. And I've got a split row planter, and I, everybody in the neighborhood now is in 15-inch rows. But Mike Plummer always used to say, I've been doing trials on this for 30 years in my area in south southern Illinois. If you want to go 30-inch rows, you can, but you're only going to give up two or three bushel in an acre. But you can grow 30-inch row beans. And if you want to grow 15-inch row beans, boy, you can put them in accurately, and they're pretty, and you can save on seed. And it works really good if you're willing to give up two to three bushel an acre over drilled. So we've been a fan of drilled beans. Some people can't take a bean on top and a bean too deep and beans throwed everywhere. But when you're harvesting and look at the monitor and look at that beautiful stand of beans, we love drilling beans. We've just ordered, again, taking the big plunge, just ordered a brand new John Deere drill. They've made a lot of improvements in them. And we just decided we're going to stay with drilling. And we think we may start going back and drilling some cereal rice. So we will plant beans and have moved to planting beans earlier than corn because corn struggles to come out of the ground when it's cold and wet. With beans, the less come out of the ground, the higher the yield is. So if you have a 20% stand reduction on your soybeans, they just yield like crazy. So we're not as worried about the soybeans coming out of the ground perfect as we are about the corn. So we've moved to to stay patient. And it took me, Frank, 30 years to do this, and I still can't hardly do it, to wait to plant the corn. Mike Brocksmith always waited and waited and waited and waited and then grew the best looking corn in the county. Well, it's hard to do when your neighbors are out there. It's not because you can't get through it. It's beautiful planting conditions, but I've learned Get out there and plant beans if you got to be doing something and wait for the warmer, not the perfect soil conditions, because often with the cover crops and everything, you can plant right in there. It's dried up and it's nice. Soil are upcoming cold rains is the death of no-till corn into cover crops. So we get out there and plant beans for a while to get it out of our system and we wait for that dry period coming to plant the corn. What kind of plant population are you using on soybeans? We're flexible. So if it's real early, we might go as high as 180,000, and then we start dropping down and dropping down and dropping down. If conditions are perfect and it's not real erodible and so forth, we'll go down into that 130, 140. And then as it gets late with the flooding and so forth, we go back up all the way to 230,000. And that is a big advantage of a drill. You're planting beans this time of year. You want them to stand up big and tall so you can get that platform cutter bar underneath them. And 15-inch beans grow like short little Christmas trees while late planted beans there's a marked yield increase and the ease of cutting them is so much more. And that's what we get into with these river bottoms. We won't give up planting soybeans until around the first of August. Wow, that's really late. For well, some... it frosts really late. <laughs> I mean, things are different. I mean, it frosts really late here. So uh, will you have river bottom land where you may plant corn and it gets flooded out and you come back with beans or not? Happens all the time, all the time. So you kind of got to be careful with what herbicides you put on corn then, right? I don't like to talk about brands a lot, but Zidua is our herbicide of choice, and it has been for years. And the reason why is that Zidua works for corn or beans and can be sprayed over the top Mm -hmm. of corn or beans. So you can imagine, Frank, when the river comes out and your field ends up looking like a jigsaw puzzle, is you're running around and you got to be able to plant here and there and you got to be careful of getting herbicide on the other crop and so forth. So Zidua has that tremendous flexibility and it's strong on water hemp. And water hemp, of course, is the number one weed in the river bottom. Sure. And Zidua is not antagonistic, so we'll go in with Roundup Zidua Diflex. So we have Roundup, a broadleaf killer, and Zidua when we're going with corn. 
and then we change that around a little bit when we're going with soybeans. If it's dicamba beans, we'll use a generic dicamba to burn down with. So if they're non-GMO beans, then we'll use a Zidua Pro. There's different combinations, and all of these cost money, and that's one of the reasons we're wanting to go to cereal rye and crimp it down. We're going to see if we can do what others have done and is just make one pass with Roundup and crimp it down and try to save $30, $35 an acre. Right now, Frank, we're getting ready to spray all of our beans and we're spraying most of our corn and that's violating the soil health rules. But right now it's overcast. It's damp, it's wet, it's high humidity. So we just flew on a fungicide on most of our good corn that was consistent. Our river bottom corn where the fog and the wetness hangs real bad. And now in the next day or so, we're going to be going over our soybeans with a fungicide, insecticide, and nutrient package. And again, that's violating the rules of soil health, but we're seeing a good boost from all of those things. And aphids are really a big threat now in soybeans. I don't know that farmers recognize the aphid damage. They all talk about green, how green the beans are staying or how bad the seed looks. That's all coming from aphid damage. So we believe that with the soybeans up and R3, that you're not getting the fungicide down on the ground, you're getting the aphids and you're spurring those plants on because they need a lot of nutrients from here on out. So we're blowing plenty of money right now. We'll get back to Frank and Ray in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Ray McCormick, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Some people have asked how much no-till we have in the world, and uh, there's really not any recent information that's coming up, although there is some talk that there might be a a figure on worldwide no-till acreage either later this year or early next year. So the latest data we have is from 2013, which shows there are 387 million acres of no-till in the world. Now, if you look at who who makes up the majority of that total, the United States was in top place with 88 million acres at that time, but this was 2013, and we think seven years later, there's probably about 108 million U.S. acres. So the U.S. is in first place with the most acres. Brazil is second. Argentina is third. Canada is fourth. And Australia is fifth. And then we get down to some other countries. The one on the bottom of the list is Ireland, which has 494 acres of no-till in the country. Let's get back to the program now as Ray McCormick talks about expanding his cattle herd, growing peaches, and intentionally flooding lands for duck hunting. So tell me about soil testing, how you do it, or do you do it? Well, I work with Siri Solutions, and Betsy Bauer is my crop consultant with Siri Solutions. We're doing grid sampling and increasing grid sampling. The new ground I picked up this year that I bought was all cattle pasture for 50 years, so we did very extensive tests on all kinds of things that would be what we believe indicators of soil health. So we're going to see using these programs we've talked about, if I can keep it up, if I can keep these almost virgin soils up in the biological health that they were the first day I planted them. So that'll be interesting. In the river bottoms, we've just about given up putting on fertilizer. We're losing so many crops and we're getting so much topsoil from other farmers 
I'm now to the point where we just put on nitrogen and sulfur with corn, and then we put on nothing with soybeans, and then we'll foliar feed them. So in the river bottoms, we went away from spending money on potash. Potash was usually one thing that showed up as deficient in our tissue test, but potash is water-soluble, or potassium is, and so we weren't sure that what we were putting on was ever getting to the soybeans or corn. So it differs on the value of the land, the ownership of the land, the years and soil health. It varies on how much nitrogen credits we think we're getting. So that depends on the stage of the crimson clover and so forth. So I would say it's flexible and changes with each field. Are you doing variable rate fertilization? Yes, we are. In the past, we did prescription side dressing. We haven't done that lately because the complexity of the different things we're on. We're trying to get to where the fertilized dealer is doing the variable rate. It's a lot easier for him Mm -hmm. to vary the inputs that he's putting on in the spring. And then what I put on is consistent. And then you're not trying to change all the time or change at each soil type and so forth. So we have done that and we're mainly doing it now on our dry fertilizer that we're putting down in the spring by the fertilized dealer. So tell me about your cattle herd a little. What do you got? How many numbers? Well, it was up to about 30 Fleckley Simmentals, and then I knew I was going to lose my pastures eventually. So I started selling off all the heifers and trimming the herd down and trimming the herd down. And then I daggone it, I was at another one of those national no-till conferences, and there was a fellow from where, Minnesota, Wisconsin, that was there talking about grazing cattle on cover crops, and I went out to supper with him. I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to get rid of my cattle herd. I said, I'm not going to have any pasture here soon. He says, well, have you got any cover crop? I said, well, 2,000 acres. He goes, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, I don't have any fence and I don't have any water. He says, you don't need any fence and you don't need any water. He says, my gosh, 2,000 acres. And he explained to me that when those cattle are on a lush green field and all the fields around them are brown, they don't want to go over there and they don't. And so putting electric fence up and moving them around and feeding them Matt Crow from Greene County. He does a lot of green chopping of cover crops. Well, once I started doing that and realizing how much hay we can get from our cover crops, last year, the first year we green chopped, where we green chopped the corn yield. We went in with corn. He said, do it where you're going to go round up ready beans. Well, I needed it to be in corn for non-GMO. The corn in those fields was higher than the part of the field we didn't cut. So I had a good experience. We did biomass removal. We did testing of the forage in those wrapped bales. And we had the cattle guy come and he says, you don't need any protein. He says, you don't need anything. He said, this is so nutritional. Just feed them these bales of hay and don't feed them any ground feed or anything. So now, Frank, we're trying to increase the herd as fast as possible. So I've got about 20 Fleckby Simmental cows and I've got 16 heifers. Mm-hmm. And we'll start keeping our heifers instead of selling all of our heifers now because we want to grow our herd as fast as possible because now we understand we've really got more forage than, than we're utilizing. So we're excited about the cattle business. Now. Right. So another thing you got going is peaches, right? Well, Frank, sad to say we've been down to five trees. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my great grandfather had peaches here and we had peaches here for 25 years, but you can't hardly grow peach trees back where you've had peach trees. They get canker and disease in them. Mm -hmm. And we eventually ran out of places to put them. And so we're down to five of the original peach trees. So Frank, the only way you're going to get a peach out of me now is you got to come and share a bowl of ice cream and peaches with me because only special people get one peach now. Well, I like ice cream and peaches. I may be down. Um, (laughs) Tell me about your waterfowl and deer hunting business. Okay, so for the deer hunting, I love the deer hunt and so do my landlord and co-investors and so forth. But I lease out 
some of my ground wherever I'm not going to hunt. I like to have it leased out so that they can patrol the property and hunt it. I want somebody I know hunting these good areas. So everywhere I leave grain and got turnips and got crimson clover. And so I lease out to fellas just farms for them to deer hunt on. And I, this is not a heavily wooded area. The migratory bird waterfowl hunting business is growing and growing and, and has great potential. And if I was younger, I would really get after it. But I'm essentially flooding different areas with different means. Sometimes I use streams. Sometimes I rely on the river coming out. Sometimes I pump with irrigation. But I essentially lease to fellows that are good friends of mine and that gets some blinds and they go three about three days a week and I haul them in. I bought a big 8434 wheel drive, the old four wheel John Deere drive and built a big wagon uh -huh. with shelves and decks and everything. And we often go in through flood water or flooding streams and take them back to the blinds. And it's a blast. We're very successful. And that's why we like to grow corn down in these low areas. So if you went into my river bottoms right now, you'd say, what the deal here? He's got beans on all the high ground and corn on all the low ground. Well, that's because we'll harvest two thirds of the corn in the low spots and leave a third of it standing for duck hunting. And that'll be plenty for the ducks. And then once duck season's over, we'll hunt speckle belly geese and Canada geese. And once that's over, we'll hunt snow geese. And I'm building wetlands and waterfowl areas right now with my dirt pan. So my year is very busy. And that waterfowl business gives me a chance to make some extra money doing something I love to do. So this pretty much takes place after corn and soybean harvest and runs into the winter? Yeah, it uh, starts usually around Thanksgiving and it'll go until the snow geese leave. So that is mm -hmm. usually probably mid-March. You've got landlords that rent you land just because you're in the waterfowl and deer or you're really conservation oriented? Is this a selling point for you picking up land? Yeah, it is, Frank. And I've heard before farmers saying, well, I don't know whether I'll have that land next year or my landlord. Uh, I'm not sure they want cover crop or help pay for cover crop and so forth. Well, I think they're coming at it from the wrong angle. I put cover crops on every acre. If I cash rent your ground, it will be in the contract that it will be always no-tilled and that it will have cover crop on it every year. And if I explain to you that next year you won't have 100 apartments, you'll have 110 apartments. And if you rent it to the guy that's tilling it, you'll have 90 apartments. Sure. You know, when I explain to them all how I'm building their soils, protecting their soils, and reducing the nutrients and everything, they love it. And it's mm -hmm. lush green. Uh, I'm fortunate. I'm in a neighborhood where there's cover crops everywhere. And the guys that work the ground in the fall, they're the ones that get the criticism at the coffee shop, not the guys that put on the cover crop. So I'm fortunate to be in a part of the county where cover crops are very well accepted and they're beautiful. It gives farmers something to do in the fall, put on cover crops. <laughs> so I just explained to my landlords, I'm doing for you what nobody else can do. I'm the best at it. And I'm going to have cover crop on it, and you're going to gain, and that land out there is the most valuable asset that you have and your family has, and I'm going to take care of it like nobody else will. And they love that. You've been really big on conservation over the years. You've taken advantage of government programs. Tell us a little about what you do in that area. Well, I'm doing it all. So if there's a program... All the programs now just about are based on conservation. So you name it, conservation buffers along stream. Every wetland, every stream has a native prairie grass buffer along it. Some fields that I have that flood too often uh, got put in WRP, which is the perpetual easement on the ground where it's really turned into a nature preserve forever. Some fields I put in the CREP program where the state kicks in extra money. So I'm actually getting over a 15 year period, about 
six to seven thousand dollars an acre to either plant trees or build wetlands and the state's kicking in money and the federal government's so crep is very popular in my area then i do equip program so equip program might be something to do with the livestock and protecting water quality it might be cover crops it may be 60 inch corn in the future who knows but Mm -hmm. equip is very big in our county and of course we've got a very strong soil and water staff we have five employees in our county that work with nrcs so we have a lot of conservation in our county they get the word out and without that soil and water staff it would be hard to do but equip is another program that i participate in so and csp and csp uh, in these rough financial times the last few years uh, you get forty thousand dollars a year by enhancing the practices that you do. So do something new on your farm. I'm leaving unharvested grain along fence rows and doing irrigation monitoring, nutrient testing under irrigation as my new practices being rewarded for the years of conservation. So CSP is a really a, a booger to get enrolled in and you got to do work with all your landlords and so forth but i'm getting forty thousand dollars a year for csp so i mean you name it i'm in it (laughs) and after a while you can only do it for so long or you can only do it for one time right but uh, that's fine with me we find that in indiana only one-third of the cover crop acres have any financial assistance two-thirds of it is being done because farmers want to do it because of the way we go out and check fields every year and have done it for decades we know what the trends are on conservation and cover crops and cover so indiana's lucky we've got that program right carbon sequestration tell me where you stand on this well the good part of it is it's free and i'm getting it and it's going in the soil and when you put a shovel in the soil you can see it when you put a soil test to it you don't see it so in our area the soils don't freeze or hardly ever freeze so we have a very robust biological life and they love carbon so they're taking that carbon and turning it into biological life so when you look at a soil test you go huh 2.1 percent organic matter all these people talk about building organic matter i can't build organic matter worth a darn well it's Mm -hmm. because the biological life is exploding so i like the shovel test to look at the top layer of soil and what that's like and what that carbon is doing to that. We didn't have prairies or very few prairies in this area, so we were poor in carbon to start with. But to take annual ryegrass, which I consider just like the prairie, it sequesters carbon four foot down into the soil. So we're growing a prairie when I planted at Palestine, Illinois this year, 300 acres of brown waving annual ryegrass to, to think of when I got out of college, we were mobile plowing and to be planting into a prairie of annual ryegrass, it just, the pride I get from the way I'm farming and what that crop looks like today, it's just incredible the change that we've done. Now, what hasn't changed is society willing to pay for that carbon. Mm-hmm. And that was close in the cap and trade bill because we could have been paid by the utilities of my area. We're big coal country here. I could have been paid what I calculated to $40 an acre to do cover crops and no-till. So that day is coming, but I'm 67. I'm not waiting on that and I'm not <laughs> depending on that, but I'm not getting paid by anyone for building carbon in the soil. And again, if we're gonna do that, what's the standard? Who's gonna monitor it? Who's gonna make sure you're doing it? And what happens when I die and they sell the ground and the mow board plows it? So there's questions to be answered in how carbon sequestration might help my pocketbook, but it's certainly helping it by building the soil. So I'm not waiting around. I know it's happening. But to what extent, I couldn't tell you that. Yeah, you hit on what I see as one of the big questions. You do uh, rent this land, you do everything right, and then you lose the land one year, and the guy tears it up and loses all the carbon that he stored. 
Yeah, that's happened quite a bit in Illinois and Iowa where there's farm management companies that were a few years ago looking for the highest cash rent. So you get farmers that say, he's built up all that carbon, I'll go mine it out and pay extra cash rent. And the person that's been on there for generations taking care of the ground, losing it, that's a crime. That should not happen. I don't hardly ever lose a landlord. The only time I do is when the land comes up for sale and land's so expensive here. Usually it's hard for me to buy it if it goes to the highest bidder. I don't have the inside track. So that's about the only way that I lose ground. I don't have any conflicts with landlords or anything. They, When you've been farming the ground for generations or when they drive by and they see all the cover crop or when they come get in a goose pit with you and goose hunt with you or you're leaving turnips, for them to deer hunt with. No other farmer is going to plant 50 acres of turnips in front of their tree stand, you know. Right. So, so I'm not worried about that part of it. I'm excited about picking up about, I'm talking to two farmers and over a thousand acres next year, and both of them have phenomenal potential for waterfowl hunting on their ground. So I'm yeah. pushing them hard to try to pick up some more ground. You mentioned dicamba earlier. Have you Did you see any damage this year? Yeah, I saw damage in my non-GMO beans from corn spraying. I mean, that's the disadvantage of growing non-GMO beans in my area, is Mm -hmm. they're the vulnerable one. As you know, Frank, this is huge produce area. I mean, they pay $500 an acre for cash rent in my area. So there's watermelons, sweet corn, pumpkins. It's everywhere. But you don't see much damage there. It seems that it's the non-GMO beans or the liberty beans they're the ones that you hear the complaints on that i get calls on and that are getting dinged and it seems like non-gmo beans are the vulnerable ones so it's amazing everybody calls me up and says what do you got and do you have anything near me and they're very diligent about checking in And the one neighbor says, I'll stay 10 foot from yours, and you overlap 10 foot and spray my GMO beans with your non-GMO chemical. That's what we did. Hmm. He just said, I'll stay back 10 foot and uh, make sure the wind's right. And you spray, and he called me up this week and thanked me Hmm. for leaning over 10 foot into his field and spraying it like I said I would. So, you know, we're trying to work together. I don't think anybody's going through the roof. But uh, we were in an area that was very hard to grow soybeans, long growing season, lots of rainfall, lots of weeds. Now these bean fields are incredibly beautiful. I mean, they're dark green and they're in the weed out there. I can't argue against dicamba beans. When you see that we're growing soybeans for people instead of weeds, we got to keep them. You've been no-tilling for years and years. What would you do? It's not likely to happen, but what would you do if Roundup got banned? I'd be in big trouble. I would. I mean, I'd probably use Gramoxone, but it's got skull and crossbones on it. I mean, I believe Roundup is an incredibly environmentally friendly product. I worked with Monsanto when they were bringing out Roundup Ready Beans. Bruno Alisi, you remember him? Yeah, I remember Bruno. Yeah, he's passed away now. He has, but he helped drive all that. And what we got, what Roundup did for conservation, they should be getting the Medal of Honor at the White House. I mean, it is incredible what they've done for agriculture and what they've done for conservation to be able to grow cover crops and kill them and so forth is great. Maybe there's other herbicides we can use, but I don't know. I'm looking at crimping and I'm trying to be as environmentally friendly as possible. And I don't think organic is. They're working the ground, working the ground, tilling it, and diesel fuel, and the soil's roading away. The soil health farmers are really the environmental revolution in agriculture. And Roundup has been the cornerstone of being able to do that. You take that tool away, we are absolutely going to go backwards on Mm -hmm. protecting the planet. Right. When the soil health came along, Frank, we were talking about no-till and not much about it. Soil health is really the biggest conservation movement that I've ever seen in my life. And I've been working through Washington, D.C. and going and giving talks for a long, long time. 
but to see something move along this quick is really giving me hope. And when you watch videos or listen to podcasts, and one of them that really impacted me was the soil carbon sponge, where the man does the mathematics on it. If we're going to save this planet and be able to feed all these people, we have to build our soils. Sustainability is not a good word. Building our soils is our only hope. And whether it's saving the planet from climate change or feeding the people that's going to be the population increase, the soil health movement is our chance. So it's in the hands of the farmers around the world. We can do it. So let's get on it. And one of the things here is that many of our no-tours have been doing this for 20 years for what we're asking people to do today. And a good example of this is cover crops. You look across the whole farm population across the country, and maybe 8% of the farmers are seeding cover crops. And then you look at our no-tillers, and it's 80%. Yeah. People often ask, Frank, so why doesn't everybody do it? Or what's it going to take to get everybody to do it? And I said, well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be still trying to do this after 40 years. You and I have been doing this a long time to try to get people to do more. But that's not an easy question to answer. There's financial risk. There's a resistance to change. There's a lack of management skills. There's dad or grandpa. There's the son coming out of college that wants to get a big four-wheel drive tractor. There's landlords. I mean, there's lots and lots of things that hold farmers back. And we just have to come at it from multiple directions. And that's what we're doing here this morning is we're using a new platform to reach farmers and it will make an impact. It will get farmers to do it. I'm doing 60 inch rows because I listened to a podcast that just inspired me and I was dumb. I knew nothing about 60 inch corn. I thought I was a smart guy and I didn't need to listen to that. Wow. What an incredible concept. I just jumped right on it. I told my son when I got out of the tractor, we're doing 60-inch corn, scratching his head. He just puts up with me, you know. Well, what's interesting now is it's tough times for agriculture, but you look at the things you're doing to add value to what you're doing, and you're ahead of everybody else in these tough times. I mean, you're having tough times too, but if you weren't doing these things, you could be in deep trouble. That's right. When I go to the National No-Till Conference, one of the things that I noticed early is the personality type of the people that come. And it's, it's just incredible. They're innovators. They're people trying to push the envelope. They thrive on that. But they're also risk takers. And they talk about failure. They aren't ashamed that they did this or they did that. And that's, you know, I jumped in here and tried some 60 inch corn on a new farm I paid way too much money on for, but I, I'm i not waiting around. Also, Frank, they laughed at every one of your jokes. And I just, <laughs> these are most humored, easily humored people right. in the world. They have great personalities and there's camaraderie that comes from being part of this. It's uh, people think I'm crazy, but the best vacation days I ever have is to go to a conservation conference. I come back and say that was the best day of the year for me. Yeah, and and it truly is. The thing that amazes me is in the last couple of years, when times are tough, you don't hear farmers at our no-till conference complaining about commodity prices. They don't like Mm -hmm. it. There's nothing they do, but they don't talk about it. They talk about other things that can make them do better than everybody else. It's fun to farm. Gosh dang it. My wife goes, why don't you come home at night? (laughs) I fixed a big meal for you. I said, because I'm doing what I love. I like to be out there doing this stuff. And it's fun way to farm. And of course, with the wildlife part of it and building areas for ducks and birds, and you see whooping cranes come into there and so forth. It's extremely rewarding and it's exciting. And it can be very frustrating when you don't get your annual ryegrass killed and it hurts the corn right along the highway or something. But if you want to be a happy farmer, move into this arena. It's chock full of happy people. There you go. Very good. Well, Ray, thank you very much for doing this. You had a lot of great ideas. So have a good day and try and get home in time for supper tonight. 
Thanks for the opportunity to do this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Reader recently asked what's going to be the impact of no-till and agricultural in the future in feeding the world. And with an ever-expanding population, we've got less fresh water and warmer worldwide temperatures with climate control and everything. They're going to have a major influence on whether we can grow enough food to feed the world over the next few decades. By 2030, which is less than 10 years from now, the United Nations predicts the world's population will reach 8.5 billion, 8.5 billion people compared with uh, 7.3 billion people just a few years ago. And by 2050, the world expects to have 10 billion mouths to feed. Since 1900, the Earth's average surface temperature has increased by 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit, and some researchers expect another 7.2 Fahrenheit temperature gain by the end of this century. So by 2030, the world will need 30% more fresh water than what's used today. An increased emphasis must be placed on irrigation to boost yields in order to feed the world. And with no-till requiring less less moisture than other tillage systems, there's a real place for no-till in the future. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Ray McCormick for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.